0: 911 what's the nature of your emergency? And it's happened twice.
1: <laughs> hey Good morning, police, fire, military, and families, and to everybody who is listening in on the Tactical Living Podcast, I'm your host, Ashley Walton, and you'll have to excuse our laughing. <laughs> me and my friend, Mr. Demo, in front of me, this is the second time that we've um, we've had him on our show, and, and Mike, we're so, so thankful for that, but this is also the second time that as soon as we get ready to press that live button, <laughs> your audio just decides to take a shit, so. <laughs>
0: Ah, well, Murphy's law is undefeated for a reason, I guess.
1: So glad that that we got that situated and figured out. So thank ah. you so much for joining me this morning. You thought it was four thirty, but it is really five thirty in the morning. My time. <laughs> and we're just talking about um, the omnience of where you're at right now because you're you're in this very remote location. And The last time that we had you on the show, it was also quite a different time because at that time you were also a father-to-be. And now baby Ryan has arrived and this whole year has been this whirlwind for you. So kind of catch us up to speed on what you've been doing for the past year.
0: So they say when you're doing a big thing, you should spread it out so in the last year we got married we obviously refurbished my old house so that we could sell it sold that house bought this house um when it's remote but i'm still an hour from new york city it's like a perfect mix um had baby ryan five months ago tomorrow and sold lauren's condo um like Nuts. By the way, there's this this thing that's like a pandemic from China.
1: Something's going on with that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So.
1: cool. So we're going to get into it. You are the guy that managed the air war in the largest battle of the Iraq war, which Mm -hmm. that in and of itself just blows my mind because we were just talking briefly about how there are so many untold stories of not just 9-11, but everything that happened in the wake of 9-11 too. So I'm going to let you just take the lead. You are also the host of your own podcast, Intentional Disruption. So um, I'm just going to let you kind of steal the show.
0: Oh, all right. Well, I guess I'll take that. So fun background on me um, for those that weren't on. I'm from Connecticut. Still don't know why I'm in Connecticut, but we're we're still here. Um, I joined the Marines. Uh, my first day in boot camp was November 26, 2000. So just after Thanksgiving, I uh, got to step on some yellow footprints and get yelled at quite a bit. Um Pretty awesome. I thought I was going to be a air traffic controller, which I live an hour away from New York City, so as a 18 year old, I was like, "Oh, I could do this part time, and like these are hundred thousand dollar jobs, pretty solid options." And I went up to my reserve unit, which is up in Massachusetts, to meet my unit before I go to boot camp. Um, my buddy Juan Galvanes uh, brought me up there; he was already in. And there's this guy, Staff Sergeant Frazier, and he West Virginian all the way had a big old horseshoe in and i don't staff sergeant mike demo i'm gonna be one of your new air traffic controllers he's like air traffic controllers man we ain't got none of them around here you're gonna be air support operator i I don't know a damn thing about what that even means so i was like yeah yeah." (laughs) redneck didn't know what he's talking about that's cool um so i go through boot camp uh you know survive that go through combat training and I know the air traffic control school is in Pensacola, which is in Florida. This is in March. That's a good time to be doing that at now 19 years old. And instead, they put me in this line of people that looked miserable to go to 29 Palms, California, which Joshua, Nash- Joshua Tree National Park, you might know it because it's somewhat closer to you. Oh, big difference. <laughs> Big, big difference. Um, but I, I did well in the class. Uh, to be in my uh, occupational specialty on the ASVAB test, the entrance exam, you had to be at a ninety or above, um, GT score of one thirty or higher. So, uh, squeaked by there, thankfully, and I did really well with it. I, I liked it. Uh, there's a lot of routine, a lot of like just knowing what's coming and. Yeah, I ended up graduating second in my class. Uh, they asked me to go active duty. And I thought about it because I really liked it. I liked what I was doing. But I asked an important question. "Is like, so, you know, because I know this is a very specialized, you know, job field, battle space management. How often do we actually get to do our job? Because I'm a E-0 in the Marine Corps, basically. I'm a private, which means if there's anything that needs done, you're doing it. So how often we do this thing? Cause it's kind of complicated. And they're like, well, you know you, we get a good one week out of the month that we're doing it. Now I'm not a math major, but that means that there's three weeks of fuckery that's possible. And that didn't seem like a great idea to me. So I flew my monkey butt back home to Connecticut and did it as a reservist. That was June of 2000 in August, uh, or, I'm sorry, 2001. And you know, I, what is it, August when college starts? So I was going school full-time, doing the reserves, that whole thing. Um, they didn't pay for anything really, but that's what I was still doing. And then the towers fell. And we're close enough where, you know, like I said, it's an hour drive down to the city normally. It's not a big deal for us to get there. And it's like, oh, shit. I've still got seven years on this contract, so that's going to be fun. I'm not going to be home very often, I don't think. And I was right. Um, you know, fast forward a little bit to, you know, the Iraq war kicking off, uh, didn't get selected to go. Uh, I was a Lance corporal at the time, E3, uh, right after that, I got promoted to corporal and I took my job really seriously because what the direct air support center does is it's an information clearing house. So we control all of the air, wherever the Marine Corps is. The reason that's important is like, you hear stories about, um, they call it blue on blue, friendly fire, Air Force jet bombs, Army people, it's not supposed to happen. They don't really have a command and control system that actively manages everything. Hmm. We do. So my job is to get all the information from the air side and control all of their aircraft while also having my other guys on the ground with the actual grunts to get feedback for what they what they need. Who are they getting shot by? What are they getting shot by? Who's injured? Who, who needs resupply? And then coordinate and make all that happen. And because of you know technology, we don't use radar to do that. It's old school, you've got a map, you've got a little sheet, you write it down, keep track of everything. Uh, it's a group of about seven people for um, a main battle theater uh, direct air support center. I'll uh, call it a desk because that's what the letters are, and I took it very seriously because at the end of the day, my job is to make sure our guys get home. You know, like we would always joke about, "I'm not here to die for my country; I'm here to let you die for your country." Um, that that's where we fall on things. Like we have no desire to necessarily kill other people; we just want to make sure our people will come home, and if we need to exercise extreme prejudice to do so you had choices and you chose wrong. So I had essentially a four year run up till I got deployed. I deployed over for, uh, they call it OAF 2.2. So that was uh, July of 2004 that I touched down. But just before that, something that was very important happened. Um, We were in Yuma, Arizona. Again, the Marine Corps gets really great deals on real estate because the places that we go to are horseshit. Um, Like 29 Palms Army literally gave away because it's uninhabitable by humans. It's our biggest base, So figure that out. And I was freaking out because that's a lot of data to be keeping track of at 21, then 22. And I remember this today. There was a captain because we're doing an exercise to get ready to go. And the Direct Air Support Center is a cool place to be in the desert, literally, because we actually have air conditioning because of all of our radios and technology and everything else. And all the uh, higher ups come in and they want to see what we're doing, what's going on, because we're the people that know what's going on in the war. Like, we've got it. So if you want to know what's happening, you come to us. And there's all these really senior people there. And it's too loud. I can't hear. Freaking out. Freaking out, man. And this captain took me aside. I was like, Corporal Demo, the fuck's going on in your cell right now? I don't, I don't know. What, what, what do you mean? We've got airplanes up or taking this guy. We're putting him here. This guy's going there. Like, you sure? Do you know what's going on? Can you hear what your people are telling you? Mm, no. Why? Well, there's all these people and you know they're doing things. Do you want them in here? Not really. But they're all like majors, colonels, sergeant majors. I'm a corporal. He's like, who owns this tent? I was the crew chief. Uh, me, sir. And he's like, all right, well, then if you don't want them, get him the fuck out. Take a breath. Think about what you need and execute. Yeah, huh, didn't know I could do that. And made the announcement. Uh, excuse me, gentlemen. Got to go we're working here. And they all looked at me and left. It was absolutely amazing. And that was a good lesson for me. It's like when things were getting really stressful, it doesn't help to yell. It doesn't help to get excited. It doesn't help to be anything but calm. Think your way through the problem and then execute on the problem. So that takes us into going over to Iraq. Now, as a corporal, I wasn't in charge of my own crew. I had all the ratings for to be higher than the sergeant that I was with, but you know, rank is rank. So for the first two weeks, I worked out of the back of a uh, KC-130. It's the C-130 that refuels airplanes, and work as a radio relay. Iraq's kind of big, so I would go up middle of the night while uh, F-18s are refueling just off the wing next to me, making sure that the people over on the Syrian border. Could talk to the people all the way back towards Baghdad. Did that for about two weeks, and then they sent me down to uh, Ramadi, which uh, the guest that we'd spoke about. Um, he was in the same town that I was in. He was just there a couple months earlier.
1: Yeah, Ed Hines. For everybody that's listening, he just came on the show a couple weeks ago.
0: Yeah, so I'd I'd, I'd listen to the show religiously. So that's who I knew. Um. And they sent me down there to the main direct air support center. So the one that's responsible for everything from Baghdad West. I'm a reservist. The active duty get totally different technology than we do. Like we're still using the pen and paper. They've got computers. Like Mm -hmm. that's how different it is. And I had to start off in the most junior position on the crew. Like update the map. That's where I started. A couple days later, they moved me over to being the ground, ground side person. So listening to the grunts on the ground, what do you need? Pass it over to my crew chief so he could talk to the air side to get the right aircraft pushed out. And then our officers that are there, they actually talk to the airplanes and guide them where they need to be. About another two weeks later, they moved me to the crew chief position. So the reservist that didn't know any of the technology, within a month, was controlling the main hub for the entire battle for twelve hours a day. Um, got night shift, so uh, it's good training for Ryan actually is just being up in the middle of the night, and that's the precursor for what's happening with uh, the Battle of Fallujah. So, for those that weren't aren't aware of what happened, uh, April of two thousand four, uh, some contractors were strung up off a bridge. It was a very, very dangerous place to be. The insurgents owned it. Uh, our policy wasn't great. Uh, in hindsight, it just wasn't great. The political side, John Brennan never should have been in charge of that war. Um, and we had to we had to go clean house. So uh, that's what the Battle of Fallujah, Al-Fajar, or Phantom Fury, if you're trying to look it up on Wikipedia. That's what it was all about is we'd been playing games with these people. And then it's like, you know what? We just need to eliminate these people. Like you're done. We're, we're tired of this. And Fallujah is right on a river and there's a highway above it, MSR Michigan. And the idea was let out some flyers, let people know we're coming. And this time we're not going to stop. Like you're going to get some. And that's what we set up for a couple weeks And we used a different technology from my side, or I should say a strategy, because we're going to push down, we're going to push in, and there's a river. You don't have anywhere else to go. You're going to get some. And that's what we were going to do. To support that, like I said, we moved over to 12-hour cruise, and we did this thing called keyhole close air support. So I'm going to try to paint a picture. I know we've got about 15 minutes, so I'm going to try to paint this picture for you. So if you imagine the center of the town, there's the four cardinal points, northeast, southwest. For 24 hours a day, there's an attack helicopter at each one of those, just lobbing in rockets. Um, You know, they're guided, so it's not like we're just shooting them. There's artillery that's coming in, mortars and real artillery. From 7,000 feet and below, there's unmanned aerial vehicles doing surveillance, uh, shooting their own rockets. And as the funnel comes out, at seven to 9,000 feet is my favorite aircraft of all time, the AC-130. Uh, they call it spooky. All it does all day is sit on a bank like it's doing NASCAR. It's got artillery tubes sticking out the side of it, and it just lights people up all day. Um, we were floor loading ammunition on those things, and they were going home before their shift was over because they were out of bullets. They'd reload. They'd come back. We had three for the entire war on terror. Two of them were over Fallujah. One was over the town where I was in Ramadi. Hmm. So we, we were getting some. Now, from that 9,000 feet up, we had, again, thinking about your cardinal position. So the north to south run is on the even So 10,000, 12,000, 14,000, 16,000, et cetera, up to 36,000 feet. On the even minutes, they'd come in and do a bomb run. On the odd minutes, the guy going east to west would come in. 24 hours a day, we were giving them some. Uh, Normally, we had between 30 and 60 flights of aircraft up doing God's work. And all of this with paper. And a map. Um, at that point, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do is make sure that we had redundancy in the system. So what I was actually having my junior enlisted people, the active duty people that should have had more time, I had them side seating with me so that they could do my job. Because in any organization, just top tip, if you're irreplaceable, you don't have an organization, you have a cult of personality. We shouldn't have that. It should be able to be plug and play. So we were t- teaching our junior Marines to do that. I ended up also controlling the aircraft because my uh, senior air director. So the officer that's technically in charge, this guy, Captain Cooper, he liked to yell a lot and get frazzled. Doesn't work for me. Like I just, I just don't, I don't work that way. People normally in high stress situations don't work that way. So Ashley, like as we the battle of is going on. We have troops in contact everywhere. This is as loud as my voice goes. <laughs> this is it. This is my concerned face. This is my excited face. This is everything.
1: And the whole time I've known you, I know that to be absolutely the truth because I have never heard your voice raising me any higher.
0: <laughs> but does it need to? You know, my mom was, you know, Italian lady, like to yell, do all that stuff. And it never really was an effective communication method. So I just skip it. Um, so, I mean, that's not to Tarantino back, but that's the idea behind keyhole close air support. And that's how in a very small place, you can bring a world of hurt. Um, and there's a lot of funny stories about that. Like, you know, the tank gunner accidentally using his main turret round instead of his machine gun to take out Haji in the corner, Ms. Um, I actually, one of my airstrikes was on CNN Um, I call in, it's called purple air. So the air force air, uh, their planes are better than ours. They just, they are, they don't have to take off from aircraft carriers so they can do cool stuff. And there's an F-16 that dropped on this crowd of people that were coming out of a mosque unseen. And believe it or not, they're like, oh, they attacked these, you know, austere religious scholars. And, you know, they were just coming out of a place of worship. Well, they would use those places of worship to reload, rearm, get all amped up and come out and kill Americans. So um, they decided to be froggy and we dropped a 500 pound bomb right in the middle of them. Uh, it's a great scene. I include. It's really, like, <laughs> Viper. You, can the, you can hear the pilot go, Oh dude, it, it's hilarious. So the, those are the funny stories about it. Um, there's stuff that isn't as funny and I figure I should weigh both sides of it. Um, Part of my the main part of my job, like I said, was to get people out. And there's a patient evaluation team that would sit right next to me, which is new. And their job was to help me determine, like, if somebody's an urgent surgical, that's one hour, they're dead. Um, where do they need to go? We had a couple different places that they could go that specialized. So uh, Balad had different bases. That's where your neurosurgery was. There's other ones that are more general wound care. And my job was to make sure that I routed them to the right place. Now, I don't know in Cali where you are, how long it takes to get an ambulance. But on average, I could have a helicopter launch from one of our air bases, get to where the people are injured to be picked up, in 25 minutes or less. Hmm. There are many times like they're bringing them in from the battlefield, and the helicopters just circling waiting for them to come as soon as they got to where they could be picked up, drop, take them go. And, you know, these are marine pilots, you know, we are very big on taking care of our own. Matter of fact, the only time that I really ever had problems were with the Air Force. Uh, We had a Marine that was shot in the head in Haditha Dam. Uh, Al-Assad, where I started in Iraq, uh, was about, I think it was like 60 miles away. And we sent, you know, a Black Hawk up to go pick him up with one of our gunships. And they said it was a little bit foggy. They couldn't see. And they didn't want to land. You know, there's also gunfire going on. And at this point in the war, this is right after Fallujah, I'm the one controlling it. So I've got the air in and I can hear the army, our air force pilot saying, I I just weren't, we can't do this. We're going back. It's not safe. And I can hear the Marine pilot screaming at him. I can bring you in. We can do this. We can get him. He's right there. Like we, we, like we need to pick him up. It needs to happen. And they go, Nope, we're returning to base. So in the meantime, like and this is part of the Marines, we had one of our just regular helicopters. I'm like, hey, I need a, I need one now. So I'm calling a colonel like I need your plane. I need it now. Get him in the air. I'll tell him what to do later. And for this medevac. So they spool up a helicopter that was just sitting on the side in five minutes. Doesn't It takes longer than that. It takes longer than that. But five minutes, that fucker was in the air. With that Cobra pilot They went out With none of the technology that this Air Force One had Dropped in, picked him up Brought him back He died about five minutes out From the yeah. place So That's something I've had some conversations About because that sucked um, I was also uh, The controller for the largest Loss of life in a a crash in the entire Iraq war. Um, January 26, uh, Samson 2-2, <clears throat> uh, CH-53 full of National Guard folks from Pennsylvania going out to Korean village to make sure that the Iraqi people could vote because these disgusting animals would blow up the line. So you're going to get, like we have an election coming up and people are like, oh, I've got corona. I don't <laughs> want to vote. These people were literally getting... Suicide bombed and they were still there to vote. It's absurd. Like, tell me what your problem is. Come on. Um, Sandstorm. The guy lost his bearings, smashed right into the side of the mountain doing, you know, 150 miles an hour. There's no way you're going to survive that, but we didn't know what had happened. And it's crazy. I'm 22. And there's three reasons that you wake the general up, you know, major battle. That's pretty much it. Our base being overrun, not ideal. And then loss of aircraft. So I have to send the guy, hey, go wake up the three-star general, which Corporal Demo needs to talk to him at 22. It's nuts. And it's one of those things It's funny because one of my best friends, Steve Jones, uh, he was out in al It's on the Syrian border. So the Korean village is in the middle of the two of us. We're on the same net. And he could hear the whole thing too. He could hear the pilot, the co-pilot screaming for his buddy. Like, dude, where are you? Like calling me back. Hey, I just saw a flash. I don't know where my guy is. And just like all the other stuff, like bringing our guys home is the big thing. And I know in the next episode, we we'll are talk a little bit about the abandonment issues and like my other deployment and all that. So that at the time didn't really impact me. Didn't think about it. But when we go into the next one, cause I know we're close to time that ended up being a pretty major thing for me, even though at the, like, I didn't realize it. Um, but that that's the opposite side of the coin of like all the cool stuff you did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to also then think, well, what did I do wrong? Like, how did I, like, did I not give him everything he needed to be successful? So not in a Debbie Downer, but
1: no, <laughs> no. You know, for everybody that's listening, um, putting warheads on foreheads for sure. Train others to replace you. Build foundations to make the organization stronger. Absolutely. Um, I, for the the time that I have known you, Demo, I feel like some of the lessons that you're shedding light on that I'm only now hearing for the first time, it really um. I believe, and this is just from somebody looking out from an outside perspective, has shaped you to be this type of person that I perceive you to be. And you've, you've really drawn so many lessons from the experiences that you've had. And in all that you've shared with us, I'm just wondering what your biggest takeaway is in terms of the lessons that you've learned just up until where we just stopped.
0: Biggest lesson, control what you can control. And you have to put yourself in the position to do that. Like a lot of people like the Instagram influencers, like they'll put out this rosy picture and like, Oh my God, life's so great. It can be, but you need to do the damn work to put yourself in the position to be successful. Like it doesn't happen by accident. Like the reason that I got put into the position that I did was even as a reservist, I was training myself more often than the active duty was because I knew the job was important and that manifested you know, the reservist taking over the active duty crew and then, you know, getting the commendation medals that I did that all happened because of the things I did off duty to make sure that I was ready
1: mm.
0: when the time came. So like, if you're not hitting your goals, you have to ask yourself, are you doing the work and are you doing smart work? <clears throat> and then you just can't get, you can allow things to impact you but you can't allow them to control you.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. Well, this is part one of three in our series, our three-part series, and um, we get two more Wednesdays with you, same time for the next two Wednesdays from now. So I thank you so much for for really, Demo, you educated us on on something that, um, and, In particular, a civilian wouldn't be privy to this kind of information, these kinds of stories, these kind of actualities of what actually has taken place since 9-11. So I really appreciate you opening up and for sharing this to all of us. And I can't wait for the next two episodes.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to see what my microphone does next time.
1: (laughs) Cool. Thanks a lot, Demo. All right. Have a good one. Bye.